And it is 9.34. Joining me now is my Master Gardener friend, Barb Lampson. Good morning, Barb. Well, good morning, Master Gardener friend. And how are you today? I'm doing great. There's a change in the weather. You know, things are starting to warm up a little bit. Well, they are. You know, here's the thing. I I don't mind Minnesota when we have these changes. You know, we had about a week ago last Thursday, we had that storm. That was kind of nice. It, oh, my boys love the snow, of course. Yes, and it gave me a chance to go through my records and, and sort out papers and things, and I felt nice and snug at home, didn't have to do anything, and it put me in a mood to start throwing things away. And I'm glad I did that because this morning I read in the paper that we're not going to have an early spring like we have had the last four years. Oh, really? And what this means for us is that... Shorter growing season? Well, and those tulips and daffodils that we've been so anxiously waiting for all that color to happen, that'll happen later than it is this year. As a matter of fact, I was reading that we have... 17 inches of frost in the ground. Now, is that normal or unusual? Well, that that isn't. It's just that with the snow cover, uh, it takes it takes a while before it'll start warm uh, before it'll start melting. So that means for the farmers that they'll get in the fields later than they normally did. Sure. It also means that things, especially if if you have uh, your areas of your garden covered. And you know, we have these microclimates where certain areas, the sun is shining, there's less snow there, and then usually what will happen, spring bulbs will come up early. As a matter of fact, crocus are the ones that we usually see that happening with. So when I was cleaning, I found one of my record books that dated back to 2006. Oh, I love it that you have such such good records. You know, I was reading on the Master Gardener listserv, which is the, the where all Master Gardeners can weigh in. They have a, a conversation going about what are some things to consider and that one of them was keeping records and there was one lady on there was talking about how she has everything online and oh. the, the other comments from the other gardeners well you know kudos to you because none of us are that organized which I agree with <laughs> right and I wish I uh, was better organized than I am but in 2006 on April 5th there were crocus blooming in my garden so in that, April, uh, yeah, April fifth. That's okay. The first, that's early, yeah. Yeah, that's early. And on April fifteenth, the um, flaming uh, parisima uh, tulip started blooming, and okay. that was an early style. It uh, and then in two thousand seven, it was March thirtieth that we had crocus blooming in my garden in the same area. And then April fifteenth, we had heart's delight and that was a tulip that my daughter had given me uh, in the fall for my birthday and I had 15 blooms I had them and all 15 of those were blooming and this was in the the back in my uh, back garden so so that was encouraging and then the daffodils started blooming that year April 21st and um, and the flowering crab apple that year started blooming May 5th and that was radiant and I made a note that that had just excellent blooms they were just absolutely covered it just lit up the whole yard then um, I st- had 2008 in another book so I had to jump to 2009 and we had such excellent 
uh, daffodils that year, with the Carlton being one of the most prolific. And then we had Golden Cheerfulness, excellent also. Pippet, which is a small double yellow. I Those are the ones that get just maybe six inches tall? Well, they're a little taller okay. than that, but yes. And Pink Charm. Do you remember when we had the uh, tulip that was, or the daffodil that was designated as uh, for fighting, be- uh, the funds went to breast cancer, or part of that went. I don't remember what it was called, though, but. Yeah, the first one was, in 2009, was Pink Charm, oh. and I had that. That was really disappointing because it's growing extremely well. The uh, the trumpet on that should be pink, and it starts out kind of a, um, well, you have a pin on today that is almost the color. What would you? It's it's. This is orange, orangish. It was orange. orangish tan. Yeah, and then it gets a little more pink in it. So, um, it's it, not what you really hope. You wanted more of a pink flush. Yeah, yeah. Flush when they of. said pink charm, I thought pink charm. Yes, absolutely. Um, and then 2010, April 8th, um, uh, most. Uh, um, of the daffodils that I have are blooming. Uh, Mount Hood was very good. And for that year, for daffodils, I also count blooms. I had 753 daffodils blooming. You counted all those? I did. Oh my goodness. And I've never tried to count them all. <laughs> I count them as I cut them off. Oh, okay. Be- before they can go to seed. So, uh, And then I always keep the uh, bloom and the stalk in the garden. I don't put it in the compost. Oh, you don't? I feel it will break down right there and give back to the plant what it took out. So, And that was the first year that I started. I introduced the uh, species tulip in my garden, the yellow one. Now, define the species tulip versus the other one. Yeah. That's confusing. Yes, it is, because the species tulip isn't a hybridized tulip. It's the way you would have found it, it, it originally in nature. And because they're a very small tulip, they um, they easily move around. They easily naturalize. develop. Yes, and naturalize. And, and but here's the thing: um, the uh, rabbits like them just as well <laughs> as the hybrid ones. And then also that year, the jack in the pulpit started blooming on the 29th of April. And you know, that is such a, that's a, that's a wonderful plant. The Jack in the Pulpit? Yes. You know, mine have spread all over the my, my shade garden in the back. I know at first I thought, well, they're going to be really a tough plant to grow. And I actually uh, p- put some of the babies in pots and my niece wanted some, so she's transferred some to her garden. Because you're not supposed to dig them up in a wooded area or anything. And I no. know I got mine, I think, from uh, the, the Master Gardener sale. Sure, about sure four or five years ago now. You know, I can't remember where I got my first jack in the pulpit, but I would suspect it was from Barb Maher, whose interest really is woodland plants. I'll bet you that's maybe where I, because it was at the Master Gardener sure, sale. Sure, right. And it doesn't take long. And they have a nice, uh, like a hard bulb. They're very easy to move around. And what I love about them is that you get that foliage. I think the foliage is, is really important. You get that early on. And with all of these kinds of things, uh, you want things that are going to kind of bloom together so you don't have these gapping holes. Another thing that blooms early, and I didn't write any more data or dates down, but are the Virginia bluebells. Yes. They're blue. They're gorgeous. They bloom a very long time. 
Now, in my yard, rabbits don't eat them. And and they're a woodland plant also. Now, I plant got another one of those from the Master Gardener sale, and I've got one, and it hasn't spread. Do they spread? Because, I mean, it's just one little plant. It blooms, and then it's done, and this has been several years, so I was hoping it would naturalize a little bit. They, they do. They, oh, they do spread. <laughs> and, and, and they go to seed, and that's how they spread. Hmm, maybe so, it's because I've got mulch, and it doesn't it, yeah, like right, that? Right, right. Yeah. So they haven't made contact with the soil, okay. so that could very well be it. But that's really a nice plant in the spring. And and then uh, there are also other bulbs that come a little later, which like the grape hyacinth. That's a very... Oh, those s- smell so good. They do. And you mass them and they look really great. They have they have such a small bloom on them that they have to have a mass of them. Of clump, yeah. But there are areas where, where they just work really fine. And what I've found now is because the bigger, taller perennials that I have in my garden, they're not up yet. So instead of keeping the grape hyacinth as a border plant right on the edge so you can see it, you can put it deep into the garden because your big, tall things aren't up. They won't they won't shadow them out. It's also called muscari, isn't it? Yes, that is. And and there's, there's more than one type. There's yes. the traditional purple one, but there's also a blue and white one. And there's also one where the bloom is just a little different. It's a little bigger and it's a little softer looking. So if you think, well, I have that in my garden. Well, maybe you do, but maybe you don't have one of these these newer well, ones. Well, I've got some that are deeper purple, lighter lavender, and then I've got some that are white, and and those are really nice. And they, the actually, the bunnies do like to eat those in your yard. Yeah. Yes. Now, why do they give? They they've never touched them in my yard, and believe me, maybe you have something else that's tastier. Yeah, yeah, you're. I think you're right there. That that's probably true. That they're they're going after those kinds of things. But those bloom for a long time. That's the one thing I liked about the muscari or the yes. grape hyacinth because tulip. Generally, if you get a warm day, they're done. They get their their petals generally kind well, of. Well, the wind, get, yeah, the wind, the wind, is wind bad. whips them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, daffodils last a little bit longer, but they now do. for for people listening, saying, "Oh, I'm going to plant all these." It's too late to plant them now because oh, these yeah. you have had to had in last the fall. fall. That's right. right. That's at the at the proper time in the fall. But and it's a great time now when they start coming up in other people's yard is to oh, look yes. and then ask them and then now plan ahead for fall because you can't plant them in the spring that they won't do anything. But right. for fall, think ahead. In my garden, for whatever reason, daffodils reproduce really well and I have to divide them every three or four years and you'll have just massive amounts of bulbs in there and then you can put them in different places. As a matter of fact, some of like uh, the Carlton, that one, it, it you just think, okay, so it mass produces, I'm going to try and push this off maybe into the edge closer to the woods and, and it'll get less sun, maybe it'll do well, maybe it won't, but it's okay to experiment like that. And there again, it depends on, uh, you could say, well, this is on the north side. Is it heavy shade or not so heavy shade? If they get enough sunlight and everything else is good, they're going to make it even with, you know, just a minimal amount. So it's kind of nice to be able to experiment like that. And and I have, there was a part in my, the outer parts of my shade garden where I tried to plant tulips and and, uh, crocus and they came up 
but they were really weak and they didn't flower well. Yeah. And then the next year they really didn't because they, they simply must have needed more sun. And, yes. and I s- just said, well, I can't do that in that spot. Sure. And and there's other things that will do really well, right. like vinca. Vinca blooms fairly early, too. The is it called? There's one vinca that's invasive. I think the one that's not invasive is called vinca minor. Yes, you're right. It's a spread because I've been looking things for hillsides, and that right. is one that doesn't mind shade. Right. And it's got pretty purple little flowers in early spring, and also is a nice ground cover. You know, Barb Maher has that on her hillside. They had a bunch of uh, uh, blue spruce that just got leggy. The the lower branches died, and as they died and they had the taken off, she introduced. Vinca. Does it look nice? Oh, it's gorgeous. Okay, it's, because I'm thinking of introducing that on our hillside by the, the lake. The foliage is so green. And, and shiny, too. And it's shiny. And then you get this purple bloom. And it likes to have its... It has its own mind. It travels here and there and everywhere. So that's a good thing when it's like in her area, it's a, it's a hillside. Which, because other, if you put it in a place where it can get too um, healthy, it can be invasive. But in my case, it's going to be, a, it's called what I call a tough garden spot. It is. And it dry, you know, she, she doesn't yep. do anything. And Barb always tells you, you know, her garden is maintenance free. She does not water. Um, and most of these things are thick enough so she doesn't get weeds in there. And, she, and that's because she does the native plants. I mean, you and I do, I do some native, but I also do some hybrids and, and they do require a lot more maintenance. Yes, they do. And uh, another plant that's really good that blooms as a companion plant in the spring are the bleeding hearts. And oh, there's, there's yes. a couple of different types. We've always had in our garden a bleeding heart. I remember that at my grandma's house. My yeah. grandmother's too, my mother's. You know, that was just a really wonderful thing. It It isn't as easy to take it inside to use it in a bouquet. You can do that, but you probably... Um, the floweret is on a, um, a curving bracket, and you don't want to be, anytime you have a plant like a perennial, you don't want to take, be taking off so much foil, foliage that you're going to have, a, it's not going to do well the next year. So I just kind of always enjoy that one outside, and sometimes I'll break off a branch, and I'll bring it in and put it with some with some tulips or daffodils. It's really, really gorgeous. The other thing about the, the bleeding hearts, also called dicentra, I've got some pink ones, and they didn't last very long, but then I got some red ones at the end of the, the year. You know, they were trying to sell them. There was like $5 a pot, normally 30-some dollars a pot, and they're, they're red, dark yes. red, and they last and last and last, I mean, well into the summer, and they didn't really die back, so I don't know if it's just a hybrid or something, but my pink ones, they pretty much die back, and I expect that, but these red ones are just amazing. Also, with the Bleeding Heart, there's a new one that is a chartreuse. The foliage is chartreuse. If you need, sometimes what you're interested in is not so much the bloom, but the but the foliage, because that uh, that kind of interest that you've got there it carries your eye on down your your pathway. And so I put that in uh, two two summers ago, and and that's doing really well. And I really like that. Uh, it isn't nearly as vigorous as the old-fashioned one was. Oh, really? But it, okay. it does have this great chartreuse foliage on it. So, And there's some with more fern-like leaves that are a little softer, and and they almost look like ferns, and yes. those are really pretty. I don't know how they grow compared with the regular ones, do you? I have that one, too. And how's it do? It, it's not doing well. Oh, it's not? It's, okay. It's Good to know. surviving 
but it certainly isn't vigorous and it's not really taking off. You know how you put in a perennial and it gets acclimated and then all of a sudden it starts growing? It's it's pretty small okay. and mediocre. Maybe and I may- won't go to that one then. And maybe I need to move it. We'll have to I have to think about that too. Maybe it's got too much competition. It's in by the hostas and maybe the hostas are you know, taking all the nutrients that it needs. I don't know. But so those are some those are some good things. I would like to encourage everybody, uh, buy a, uh, a tablet or something, and as you plant, record, and as things happen in nature, record it. It, it keeps you in, informed. So when they say we're going to have a late spring, just say, well, yeah, but it's not going to be that late. It's not going to be that different. You know, we're still going to have, we have these blooms coming here. When you have people like me who want to get out there, it's like, oh, I just want to get out there. But, you know, I've done that before. And what you find out is sometimes you have failures because you do get out too soon and right. that's harmful. So you patience is a virtue. I was in my greenhouse one day this week when the sun was really shining. Now you won't believe this, but solar is amazing. It was without any extra heat just from the sun. It was 86 degrees. Wow. And I was like, oh my gosh, a mini little vacation. Yes, so, tropics. Yes, yes. Of course, I couldn't do anything, but I did sort pots. I, I, I did clean off my workbench and some things like that. But even that felt good to be working in short sleeves out there, 86 degrees. I love it. That's good. Yeah, and you didn't have to travel to Georgia. <laughs> no, I didn't. And I know I, I'm always excited when children are interested in science or have a science project. Uh, and I know that Blake has been working on a project with his friend. That's right, with plants. I was so excited he just wanted to do this because I love plants. And my son, who is 10, in, in the fifth grade, they do science fair project. He teamed up with his, his little friend Gabe, and he, they decided they wanted to know which type of water produced healthier plants or would help with plant growth. So they tried carbonated water, distilled water, and tap water. And their hypothesis was that the carbonated water would help the plants grow um, healthier and faster because part of the photosynthesis process is that the carbon dioxide is taken up in in the leaves and, and goes to make sugars and foods for the plants. And they thought, well, maybe if it's got that extra boost in the roots that they would grow faster. So six weeks, uh, it took the project was six weeks. We took a whole bunch of babies off my mother spider plant which is here at the the window here at the work because it it got had about 80 of them and then they selected nine of them so three for the distilled three for the carbonated three for the tap and because for you know you have to repeat to make sure you get good scientific method and so they planted these in the same soils and peat pots and every sunday they would had a leaf that they had marked they'd measure the length and they'd measure the height of the plant, which wasn't effective because, as you know, when we planted the spider plants, they were taller because they were kind of sticking up. But spider plants have a horizontal growth, so the leaves kind of relaxed and spread out, so mm. they actually got shorter. So we, they realized, okay, that wasn't a good measurement. But it was interesting watching over the, the every Sunday the, when they would measure these plants and they would look at the health of them, etc. Um, they were surprised. Their hypothesis did not turn out, Barb. Yes, yes. Uh, so, so what happened was at the end, um, really, I mean, some and they also counted if there was new leaves that grew on them because the, 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 the spider plants rooted, all of them rooted nicely. And s- really in terms of how many leaves they got, new ones, or how long the length of the leaves were in terms of who gained the most, they were pretty 
pretty much close. The same. So he, there's yeah. no sci- as my husband would say, there's no scientifically significant difference. Right. Um, but the thing that they was interesting was when they took we uh, took the the peat pots off and looked at the roots mm-hmm. and. The roots, you know, were all very healthy roots. They all looked really nice. The ones with the distilled water, the roots had a lot more fine, fine. uh, Well, they all had good branching, but on the thicker roots, roots, they had a lot of the little fine hairs. So I'm not sure what caused that, but um, yeah, uh, yeah. Anyway, so so they're you would think that um, the ones that where the roots are developing more, and when we we love to see those little fine hairs, that. The soil is better for them. The environment was better for the microorganisms that were there. So that might be one conclusion that you could draw. Well, the the carbonated when you it was interesting because when you put the carbonated in, it would just bubble, bubble, bubble. It was like a big foamy thing. And then when you looked what was released, you know, when some of the water came out, there was a lot of um, color discoloration of the water, which means to me it took a lot of the stuff out of the soils because it drained out versus the other ones, the water came out more yeah. clear. So, I mean, in a way, maybe it wasn't as effective. Um, and that's, I mean, so it was kind of inconclusive. Sure. So my uh, their advice is basically use whatever water you have because it's not going to make a difference. Don't spend a lot of extra. But if you do use tap, and we did this, make sure it sits out so the chlorine-fluorine yep. that's put in it has a chance to evaporate out, yep. in which we did. Yes. And so, um, but it'd be interesting to see if they had tried that over time, uh, if that would have made a difference, because <coughs> yeah, it could have. I, yeah. I don't know. Because if there was um, if there was a buildup from the carbonated water, it would be interesting to see. Yeah, or salts or anything that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Although we use seltzer, which doesn't have any salts added, so it shouldn't have had that problem. Right, right. Well, you know, and then the other thing would be uh, is are are they going to be as hardy when they get into a regular environment, uh, when they're on their own, if you're going to put them in a window or wherever, which plant is going to be the hardiest? Which one is going to continue to... Um, thrive and grow and and produce flowers and seeds. You so mean after the ones we've started? Uh-huh. Because uh-huh. I did take, you know, there's three, three, and three in each group. So I took a bigger pot and put all three with the, the same one that was watering. Yeah. And it'll be interesting yeah. to see. And right. and so the, he's going to be having that at, and doing that at the science fair today. And the judges come in and they ask them what their scientific yes. process was and what they learned. And so hopefully uh, um, it'll... It'll be something that will keep them interested for a long time. You know, for several years, I, ju- I judged uh, science fair projects. Oh, and did you? Okay. And so did my husband. It was one of the most uh, exciting, wonderful things. And the same way when I judged uh, children's 4-H projects at the county fairs, talking to them about what they did and talking to them about record keeping, it's just, it opens up a whole way, a new way of thinking because you think you're going to remember all these details, but when you're trying something, especially like a science fair project, every single detail is important. Sort of like when you found when you recorded your your history of what's happened in your garden, like a lot of times I think, well, I'll remember that I planted my tomatoes here because it's important to rotate. So if you don't remember, you risk getting diseases if you replant in the same spot. So and, and you know, it keeps telling you these microclimates that we talk about are so important. And so if you have a type like say like a Mount Hood daffodil and you plant it in three or four different places in your garden, if you planted it in the worst microclimate, it's gonna do terrible. But in the best climate, it's gonna do 
better because things are better there. What you don't know? Did it did it have more competition after it bloomed and it didn't have enough sunlight so that it could make the energy to put the bulb the bloom up again next year? I mean, you start taking a look at these things and say, "Oh, this is a rotten place for this. I I just have to move this." Well, sadly, there are a lot of people <clears throat> who say, "Oh, you're a master gardener. You've got a green thumb. I've got a brown thumb. I kill everything." And sometimes I wonder, is it because they maybe don't pay attention to the sun requirements, the soil requirements, and then, you know, the plant doesn't do well and they think it's their fault. Well, it it probably is because they didn't read the directions, but if a lot of times that makes such a big difference, and also I will still, I will pound on this soil testing too, to know what's in your soil. It's $17, at least it was a couple years ago when I did it, and I found out that really my soil didn't need any additions except in a couple places. Sure. And so otherwise you're just wasting your your money right, on fertilizers right. uh, and compost is a good thing because that's going to add to the soil in terms of we have such tilth. heavy soil here right we we may have all the nutrients but if it's so heavy the root just can't use that it needs to have uh, room for the oxygen so that it can take that up so all of these things go together we don't want to make this sound too difficult for people if you haven't gardened you know you can always contact your extension service and they're going to give you the right kinds of information that you need but starting the most important thing would be improve the soil get that so that it's understanding that it's that it's heavy getting some good compost in there and then you know compost uh, when you buy it in a bag, it's not all the same. Be no. sure and read labels. See what, what it's made up of. I've, and I've called the local farmer asking if they have some well-rotted cow manure, and they're going to kind of check around to see, because I need to use a lot of compost on my hillside. But, I mean, to buy it bag by bag, it, it'll take forever. So yes. I'll yes. see. I mean, they might. I don't know. Otherwise, um, yeah. 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 You know, um, uh, I I think composting, uh, it, when you... When you put all these things into a bin and you turn them and you nurture them it's when you get when you get this wonderful compost and it smells good and it's fluffy and that i mean it it just it's it there's nothing quite like it for me i just i put it in a wheelbarrow and i you know run my fingers through it and i'll think well where shall i use this you know this plant you know this this one gets it this one doesn't get it i'm very picky thrifty yes. yeah very thrifty with so that. i i just went out to dump some food scraps into my clothes compost bin i opened it up and guess what was on top mice Really? Oh, yes. When it was frozen solid, I didn't see any. But now that it's warmed up a little, there they were. And they got little holes dug in there. And my Blake goes, he goes, well, they're probably helping to compost it faster. <laughs> oh, wow. That's Now, it's it's interesting that they're, that they're in there and that they're eating that. Because you're not putting, like, table scraps from the table that well, are... Well, I'm putting, like, eggshells and... carrots peelings and potato peelings so they yeah yeah, that's that's good but i mean you're not putting fats in there or seeds in there No, but they apparently enjoy the Uh, i guess i I don't know if they're mice or they're voles probably voles and you know my eggshells okay now this is probably a we're almost out of time so yeah yeah this is this is probably a, a bit overkill but um i wash them once I I use an egg and then I put it the shells I put into warm water I thoroughly wash them out and then I put them on a cookie sheet when I have a mess of them and I put them in the oven at 200 degrees for about 30 minutes and dry them off I don't want um, 
to attract any kind of a rodent that would be coming after whatever is left over in that shell. So so I'm washing them. So, so Barb is the extreme. But yeah. thanks, Barb. We appreciate it. We'll chat with you next week. <laughs> thanks, okay. Bye-bye.